Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Beyond the Paywall episode of Our Son Pete, WMQ&A's monthly Patreon exclusive, normally, uh, bonus podcast where I go into the history of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. Uh, why are you hearing this? Well, you know, we've had uh, we've had a couple of scheduling issues recently with guests, and I thought I'd use this as an opportunity to, uh, once again, uh, introduce you folks to uh, this show and uh, what it's about. For If you're not familiar, if you subscribe to WMQ&A at the $3 tier on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash WMQComics, uh, you get access to this whole other bonus podcast where once a month I go through an issue of... Uh, Currently, it's the Warren Ellis run of Excalibur, but I'm going to keep going. It's the comic appearances of, of Pete Wisdom, the British mutant with the hottest knives coming out of his hands uh, with a guest. And uh, we break it down and talk about, you know, the art, the ads of the time, uh, Warren Ellis as a shitty human being, uh, all kinds of fun stuff. So uh, this episode that you're hearing today is actually the second episode uh, that we recorded uh, many moons ago in the beginning of the year. Uh, it's me and guest Austin Gorton. You might know from uh, the old Comics XF bullpen, uh, talking about Excalibur number 87, and also a little bit of X-Men Prime from 1995. Uh, you should definitely, if you like what you hear, consider subscribing this very week, because I am editing together the newest episode of Our Son Pete for the Patreon, which uh, I am joined by guest Dr. Stephanie Burt, and we are talking about Excalibur number 93, which, uh, while Light on Pete Wisdom is the uh, issue where Wolfsbane confronts the Reverend Craig, and uh, Stephanie was a fantastic guest. Uh, so many great insights into Wolfsbane and the nature of abuse and Casey Jones' art and so many other great things. So uh, that probably is one of the smartest episodes of the show that we've recorded. So, you know, uh, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. And uh, now here's the rest of the episode. Hello and welcome to Our Son Pete, a monthly Patreon-exclusive WMQ&A bonus podcast where I, Dan Grote, read through every appearance of British mutant spymaster Peter Winston Wisdom. Uh, this week we'll be covering X-Men Prime and Excalibur number 87. And to help me, I am joined by our first guest. Uh, you may know him from covering Hellion, Star Wars, X-Men Legends, and other comics for Comics XF. You may know him from tweeting about trading cards. Uh, he is the real gentleman of leisure himself, Austin Gorton. Uh, Austin, welcome to the most self-serving project I've ever undertaken. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, <laughs> nothing wrong with self-serving projects. That's uh, what we're all here for anyway. Uh, you know, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, what is your own personal history with Pete Wisdom? Well, let's see. So I read this era of Excalibur um, that the issue we're talking about, the issues that we're talking about tonight came from um, in real time as they were being published. So my first encounter with Pete Wisdom was everyone's first encounter with Pete Wisdom. <laughs> um, I think I probably thought he was very cool back then. Um, and then I grew up and didn't find him as cool. And now you are doing your best to convince me he is, in fact, as cool as he was, as I thought he was when I was younger and first encountered him. Uh, but yeah, I didn't, 
So I read Excalibur. I, he popped up, he pops up in X-Force and I read that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but his latter uh, fighting vampires on the moon material, I've probably only read once and I'm not nearly as familiar with. And then he kind of disappeared for a while until he popped back up in, in the Krakoa era um, where I have mostly enjoyed Pete now that we have enough distance from um, his thin veneer of Warren Ellis cynicism and mm-hmm. the X-Files are popular. Here's an X-Files character in your X-Men comics. That, that is exactly true. And, and we are, we are one issue away from the X-Files-iest Excalibur story arc of them <laughs> it all. Really, it really is the most X-Files riff ever. Oh <laughs> uh, man. I mean, we're not covering this issue right now, but the man does say the truth is out there. So, Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> Warren Ellis knew what he was doing at that point. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So before we dive into today's issues, uh, just to catch people up because they probably don't remember from a month ago, uh, Previously, in Excalibur number 86, uh, the team is approached by a mysterious new intelligence agency, Black Air, that claims to have taken the place of the old Weird Happenings organization. They ask the team to investigate a special type of ammunition being used in street fighting in Genosha. Wisdom, making his first appearance, is assigned to accompany the team as he is purported to be an expert on Genosha, a thing that is not touched upon again until Ellis monkeys around with X-Force in the year 2000. Uh, As the team makes their descent on Genosha, the plane's hit by a missile, and as they crash, reality breaks and is interrupted for four months by the Age of Apocalypse. So with all that out of the way, uh, we're going to start with X-Men Prime, and I'm going to inhale deeply and then read the full credits. (laughs) Uh, Co-written by Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza, drawn by Brian Hitch, Jeff Matsuda, Gary Frank, Mike McCone, Terry Dotson, Ben Herrera, and Paul Pelletier. Inked by Al Milgram, P. Craig Russell, Cam Smith, Mark Farmer, Mark McKenna, Tom Palmer, Tim Townsend, and Hector Colazzo. Lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Colored by Steve Bucolato and Electric Crayon. And edited by Bob Harris. Uh, I should clarify, we are not covering the whole book, just the two-page Excalibur scene. Uh, there is a perfectly good episode of Jay Miles explaining the X-Men if you want the rest of that. <laughs> or uh, you can read my review of the issue. I did. Uh, I, I have examined this one. So examining X-Men Prime number one. Google it. That's real yes. gentleman of leisure dot com. So uh, I, I had this is, of course, a very slight two pages, but it gave me something to do in that I had to figure <laughs> out who drew those two pages. <laughs> it is just non- it is not obvious who drew those. So, you know, Jeff Matsuda, Brian Hitch, even young Brian Hitch at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Terry Dodson, a lot of these people that are in these credits, you, they have a very distinct style. And then you look at these two pages and it's just like, I have no idea who this is. Yeah. I mean, that, like the, on first read, I was like, well, I know it's not Brian Hitch and I know it's not Jeff Matsuda. That much right. was clear. Right. The rest were were anyone's guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the credits don't give you any sort of page breakdown. And there's so many inkers and you don't know who is teamed with who, like which inker is with which penciler. And so then that you're just like, I don't know, maybe this is Brian Hitch. And he's just got a really heavy inker on him for these two pages. It's, it's terrible to figure out. Uh, it is. And I, they probably also didn't expect uh, people to be, you know, sleuthing it tw- uh, 27 <laughs> years later. True, true. <laughs> but but here we are. So uh, I, I, I put the call out on, on Twitter. I was like, does anybody have any guesses? 
Uh, and uh, one Twitter user at TD Mollusk actually gave me his his what he believed to be the breakdown of artists by page. Uh, he was a little less clear on the scene. Uh, he said, Wisdom's face shape looks wrong for Hitch, but Kitty and Douglock kind of look like Hitch's style. Uh, so, you know, that was a possibility. And and it's like you said, you know, Hitch with a different anchor. Sure. It could look yeah. completely different. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, writer uh, and friend of the podcast, uh, David Peppos, guest uh, Paul Pelletier, based on uh, how the old, uh, the first mutate was drawn in that scene. And uh, so I, I had, uh, I happened to read uh, DC's Infinite Frontier last year, which uh, Pelletier drew parts of. And uh, it, it seemed like a, a close match, you know, again, you have to account for 27 years of, of evolution of personal style. And it's also entirely possible because Infinite Frontier was another jam book that I was confusing Pelletier pages with Hermonico. Right, so, right. <laughs> uh, so finally I, I, I figured, all right, well, let me, let me reach out to the source here. So I DM'd Fabian Nicieza this morning and uh, I was just like, and honestly, I wasn't holding out too much hope because again, it's 27 years ago. He probably doesn't, you know, remember, uh, you know, and I showed him the pages. I, I told him the list of artists and his guess, what he was reasonably confident is his words was it was, it was Pelletier. So I think, I think that's what I'm going to go with. Yeah, that was one uh that was one of my guesses just based on process of elimination um, and, and a vague familiarity with his style, but it is definitely not clear at all. Yes. Scholars will be debating this for centuries. <laughs> I am sure they will. <laughs> oh man. So uh, yes, again, it's a, it's a two page scene. We get Pete Kitty and Doug Locke interrogating uh, the first mutate, uh, who, like any good NPC in the 90s, claims to know the mystery man standing in front of him, see also Wolverine and Gambit. Uh, so true. It's so true. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, you want to be cool, get, get you know, have, be recognized by a, an ancillary character who's killed off within pages. Um, yep. So Kitty refers to this mutate as Mr. Edgerton, which is... Interesting because there are two characters named Edgerton in this comic. The other one is in the M plate, the Generation X scene, Lady Gail Edgerton, who is apparently the ex-girlfriend of Chamber. Uh, but there's there's no relation. There's no commented upon, you know, isn't that funny? Because they're two completely distinct scenes taking place in two different countries. Uh, there There is a lot in this book of, first of all, this is, this is Lobdell and Nicieza you know, coming together to write all these scenes for all the different X books, most of which they weren't writing at the time. So, you know, there's X Factor scenes. That was Howard Mackey's book or was about to become Mackey's book. You know, Ellis was writing Excalibur. Um, I think Loeb was just getting ready to take over X-Force. This is right when Nicieza was getting shown the door. I can't remember whether he was fired or quit, but. Uh, he was, oh boy, I think he was, I think it was like, quitting you can't fire me i quit kind of situation that sounds um, very comics yes yeah yeah <laughs> but you know the the, the point is they're they're kind of like the broad strokes the mission going into this book is okay we're we're back in the 616 now but we have to figure out how these four age of apocalypse characters fit into the books now uh and so it's revealed that the sugar man 
the uh, blob with arms that says the first two words of every sentence mushed together uh, is apparently behind the mutate bonding process in Genosha. He's also really good at making people and objects explode via computer. Uh, which is is a little bit different from you know what we saw of him in uh, next generation generation next whatever the generation next age of apocalypse book was yeah generation next yeah uh, this scene is also notable because Doug Locke calls uh, the first mutate the original Morlock so now we're confusing mutates and Morlocks and also there is a first Morlock in this book and it's the Dark Beast so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, I feel like either Lobdell or Nisieza, in the same way we don't know who drew what, we don't really know who's scripting what, and to your point, you can't even just assume that it's, you know, Nisieza's writing the X-Force characters, because that's his book. Well, it's not anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Jeff Loeb's coming on, and it's like, we have no way of knowing who's writing what, but I feel like the same writer had probably wrote both the Gen X scene and this scene, and had like Edgerton scribbled on a note of like, when I need a random surname for someone, here's my lists of names. And then just used it twice and didn't even realize it. You know, wrote wrote those pages, moved on, did something else, came back, wrote the, the Excalibur pages. Um, it's, it is, it's really, it's a mess. There's no relation to them, um, between them at all. And um I mean, you know, it's it, it's this weird situation where these two writers don't have any stakes in the vast majority of the of the books that they're seeding these plot lines for and throwing this stuff out there. And then everybody else just kind of has to pick it up and run with it. And I'm sure they have at X-Men summits and all that kind of stuff like they do now. I'm sure some of this stuff came from those writers and then Nisias and Odell just sort of scripted it all. But, um, you know, I can't imagine Warren Ellis was like, name that mutate Edgerton and Lobdell is like too bad I'm using that in Gen X we're gonna have two names <laughs> yeah they, they didn't talk to each other <laughs> no I don't think so no way <laughs> oh man but I actually that does lead me to guess that does lend credence to my theory that it was I should have asked Fabian when I messaged him but it, it lends credence to the idea that Lobdell wrote that scene both because he had written Excalibur prior to Ellis coming on the book. And also he was writing generation X at the time. So right, there right. was a reason for him to get the name Edgerton in his head. That might be it. Yeah. And it's the Edgerton character, the chambers ex-girlfriend Edgerton sticks around. I mean, she's a character in um, Liddell brings her back in a few months in, in one of the post age of apocalypse gen X stories um she teams up with m-plate and attacks the school and all that kind of stuff so clearly that's the the prime edgerton if you will and the (laughs) mutate that gets killed off here is the afterthought i think yes um you know it's it's a little disconnected in in other ways too so you know we're not obviously we don't we're not picking up right from the plane crash or anything but you know, in 86, Excalibur was sent to Genosha to investigate some bullets, and now they're talking to the first mutate. So about like the bonding process, which to me seems like, okay, we wanted to make Sugar Man the guy who, you know, was responsible for the mutate bonding process. They're in Genosha. I don't know, just mush, mush the two together. 
it's yeah, the kind of stuff you get in 90s comics. Right, right. Yeah, X-Men Prime is is a really weird book. And so this is 1995. So I am 13 or 14 years old as mm-hmm. I'm reading this stuff. And, and I mean, I'm eating it up. I've been reading comics for a couple of three years now, and I am just all in. Mm-hmm. And when Age of Apocalypse came along and they did Legion Quest and you've got every book the month before Age of Apocalypse starts does this whole reality is overtaken by the Mkron crystal and it crystallizes and it breaks. And then, oh, it's the Age of Apocalypse. It's this brand new reality and it's different than all the other alternate realities. And um and all of the books going into that had this big moment. I mean, some of it like in Excalibur 86, oh, the plane is crashing. Like that's a pretty standard, you know, issue ending cliffhanger. But a lot of the other books, you know, Rogue and Gambit kissed for the first time. And that was just this, you know, huge payoff to their simmering sexual tension and um, um, all this, you know, these, these big, these big events. And then you do Age of Apocalypse. And I loved Age. I mean, Age of Apocalypse is just one of those, events that's you know warmed its way into my into Mm -hmm. my dna Um, and then you come back from x-men prime and it as much as i just sort of ate whatever these guys were were feeding me with a spoon x-men prime kind of sat wrong with me because they do this whole um we come out of age of apocalypse and time has passed Mm -hmm. And so we don't actually get to see very many of those cliffhangers resolved. So like Rogue and Gambit kiss. And then the next time we see them, Gambit's in a coma and Rogue's on the run because of something she saw in his head. But like, we don't see the aftermath of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that bothered me. It like, it, it was this great, these great cliffhangers that then we just blew past them. And X-Men Prime is very much about, you know, here's what, the comics world is going to be like post age of apocalypse. Here's a bunch of plot lines that we're threading and all that kind of stuff. And it works in that regard, but it was disappointing to me even back then how much they just sort of skirted past these big, what were meant to be these big earth shattering cliffhangers, reality shattering cliffhangers, really. You know, it, it does, it does two things, right? So it, it draws you in with the mystery of, well, what happened with that thing? that you know we're not addressing right right right. now right but it also buys the writer's time to figure that out as if they didn't already have four months to figure Uh to work on that since you know scotty lobs famously just made this shit up as he went along so it was like anything that could buy him a little bit more time was a good thing yeah, and it's funny we're 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 getting on his case for that, but you know Larry Hama plots three pages at a time, and we all sing his praises. I know I, it it tears me up inside because man, I rag on Scotty Lobs about that, but yeah, Hama is just as bad, if not worse, <laughs> in that regard. Uh, and yet, um, okay, so so that was that was prime. Uh, like I said, not much there, and also we still need to figure out where that scene fits into the larger. Uh, Excalibur and Genosha plot. So now we're going to turn to Excalibur number 87, Back to Reality, written by Warren Ellis, drawn by Ken Lashley, inked by Tom Wegren, colored by Joe Roses, letter by Richard Starkings and Comic Craft, and edited by Suzanne Gaffney. Much easier to get through. Uh, this one also features a pretty sweet cover by Carlos Pacheco, uh, who would go on to become the series' regular penciler uh, a few months down the line. Yeah, this is... Um... Ken Lashley's last full issue 
of Excalibur. He does, he pops up in a couple more after this that are like jam issues or he splits the time with a couple of other pencilers, but um, he's kind of on his way out at this point. But uh, he was, I'd have to crunch the numbers, but he may well be the Excalibur artist with the most credits to his name after Alan Davis. Alan Davis, obviously, you know, lengthy run with Claremont launching the series and then did a writer artist thing for an even bigger chunk of time um, before leaving the book. And then they bounced around with a bunch of different creative teams. And Lashley was kind of the first guy to come on and stick around after Alan Davis left. And he was on the book for a fair amount of time. Um, And even after that, you know, like you said, Pacheco comes on board, but he has a short run and he does like a timeshare thing with Casey Jones and, Mm -hmm. um, I think Lashley might be the silver medalist of Excalibur artists just in terms of longevity. And he's also the only regular X book artist uh, other than Chris Spatulo to draw the immediate post-age of apocalypse issue. So all the big name creator, Andy Kubert and Mm -hmm. Joe Mad and, and uh, all these guys. And then Tony Daniel is on X-Force, but he left with age of apocalypse. Right. Um, So all of the, they all stuck around and they did their age of apocalypse books. You know, this is our marquee event. We're going to have, have Joe, Joe mad doing everything that we can get him to do. But then they all pretty much took the month after off. Like we did four <laughs> issues straight. We we're nineties artists. We can't do five. Are you <laughs> kidding me? Except for Ken Lashley and Chris Bachelow. So mm-hmm. they, they are the only two that cover their return issue. Yeah. No, Lashley is definitely one of those, you know, competent, stable, yeoman of the period who got the books out you know after the chaos of of the image exodus and through right around here so right right and and then a lot of the art in excalibur for a few months before pacheco comes on is just straight garbage time but we'll get into that (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's all over the place (laughs) uh all right so uh kind of summary as we go here uh now we actually get now we're actually picking up from the cliffhanger we get to see the plane uh crashing and it's uh saved by by megan who is this is actually kind of an interesting period for uh for her low-key because she's exploring her talents as an elemental uh she's also you know learning to read and picking up a lot of things that way but she kind of coaxes the electricity over some like crossed wires and that somehow allows them to, to steer the plane uh, out of the skid and land, uh, land safely. So, uh, you know, good on her. It it gives her, you know, some more dimension and, you know, some stuff to do outside of the shadow of, of Brian, which is, is always nice to see. Yeah. She was um, she'd really benefited from the decision to write out captain Britain from the series for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhat maddeningly, he disappears between a pair of issues with no explanation, um, right right when Alan Davis left, and then Scott Lobdell came in to kind of fill in and steady the ship for a little bit, and uh, he just writes Captain Britain out, and he's gone through issue 75, and then he comes back as Britannic, which is what he is in this book, uh, though Ellis is already starting to punt that away and bring back normal Brian Braddock. But, uh, but even then he's Britannic and he's different and he's been changed. And um, that really did allow Megan to kind of step out 
on her own a little bit more, uh, which was a one of the few highlights of the post Alan Davis, Scott Lobdell, Richard Ashford run of Excalibur. Mm-hmm. And this is also one, as I said before, we didn't get a lot of cliffhanger, direct cliffhanger resolutions, but here we, via flashback, we get to actually see how they saved themselves from crashing before the reality fracture, which is a, a unique thing amongst the Xbox. Yeah, I do feel like a crashing plane is a little bit more of a pressing matter than whatever, you know, Rogue saw in Gambit's head when she kissed him. Right, you do kind of have to uh, uh, come up with the explanation there for why they're not just, when reality reformed itself, they didn't just splatter on the ground and that was the end of that. Just just, just say, just shrug your shoulders and say, uh, A-team logic. But uh, this is this is actually the first time, finally, we see uh, Wisdom in a clean suit. Uh, he <laughs> shows up, like, the first time you see him, he's just blown up a village in Thailand, uh, and then immediately goes to Muir Island, still in a rumpled suit, and then you see him in Prime, and he's still in the same goddamn tattered-ass suit. I mean, give it up. Props <laughs> to the artist for maintaining visual continuity, but at some point, uh, they say, like, two weeks have passed between when the plane crashed and the present of issue 87, uh, he either finally had time to find a dry cleaners on Genosha or a men's warehouse. So uh, good for him. (laughs) You need to get a little um, uh, interstitial music, you know, wisdom suit watch every time he uh, play a little fanfare, every time it's time to talk about the state of wisdom suits. (laughs) I, I, I do. I do have a suit category farther down in the show. And yes, what you've just done is encourage me. And that is a horrible slash wonderful thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just get like the old clip of George Zimmer from the uh, men's warehouse commercial saying, you're going to like the way you look. There you go. It. That's perfect. <laughs> uh, so uh, while we're talking about wisdom first, we also get the first uh, appearance of his hot knives of his mutant power. Uh, he, they, they basically land in the middle of a street fight between uh, ex um, Genosha military and mutates, some of whom are are starving and impoverished. And then there's a few uh, jacked looking dudes who do all the fighting on their behalf. And so they mistake uh, Excalibur for either siding with the military or being humans or, or, or something. And, you know, Wisdom tries to get him to, to, to calm down, but uh, he keeps advancing and he unleashes uh, what he describes as blade shaped plates of pure heat, hot as the heart of the sun. Uh, and here they look like tiny diamonds. Uh, and that's another thing, especially with Lashley leaving. It's a power that is drawn differently by every artist ever uh, to this day. A lot of times, some of the lazier ones, they just make it look like he has hot claws, like he's Wolverine for like two months in 2019. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's just, it's so Warren Ellis and so 90s. I mean, hot knives, this, this I mean, it's, it, it's chef's kiss. I mean, just the perfect distillation of those two things in one superpower. And I love the description that they are as hot as the heart of the sun, which would suggest that anytime he uses them, it should be causing irrevocable damage to anyone around him and the environment around him. If they were truly as hot as the heart of the sun. 
and also how Kalistar he's like th this gets into a whole like Wolverine every time he pops his claws does it hurt his hands where right. do they go when they're retracted right. like type logic but like shouldn't they be like cauterizing his fingers like what are they mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. I don't yeah. want to like look at that too closely like uh, no. No. Like when John K did like close-ups on Ren and Stimpy and everything was just all like gross and pimpled. <laughs> yes. Uh, speaking of another person from the nineties who was not a good person, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> They're everywhere. We can't escape them. You really can't. Um, the, th the thing about wisdom is he appears to, because this is the second time we've seen him uh, not necessarily in the middle of or, you know, but after a an act of violence, feeling remorse, being drawn sort of hunched over and and very upset about it. So, you know, the two things we know is this guy is an asshole. This guy doesn't like killing people. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is this is really the start of, uh, you know, Ellis making it clear that this is you know the rogue with a heart of gold, that he has the the rough edges but deep down inside he's he's a decent guy mm -hmm. uh so and then we finally kind of get some clarity on the timeline of where prime takes place somewhere in the middle of all this they went to uh moreau the uh the the gene engineer uh his lab to look at his notes uh as but it's still that thing of, well, we're here to investigate bullets, but, you know, while we're here, let's figure out the mutate bonding processes. If, you know, any of us has ever been involved in Genosha stuff before. <laughs> Just bizarre. <laughs> Not to mention, and this is the funny thing, they go to Moreau's lab, Edgerton blows up, they walk around or drive around some more, they go back to Moreau's lab, and it blows up again. I think they go, I think the first one is Moreau's lab the second one is moreau's house where he also had lab stuff and also blows up i mean they both blow up that that is uh that is consistent <laughs> they are not making <laughs> they're not helping themselves no they're really not i mean it's, it, it it is very clear that whether Ellis came up with them himself or was handed a list of plot points, he has a list of plot points and he's hitting them and he's not terribly concerned with yeah. um, getting from A to B to C here. And, and to be fair, this is, this is early Ellis, right? This is his first, uh, not his first Marvel work, but you know, his, his first time on an X book, he's the rookie in this pool. So you know, it's quite possible, like you said, Lobdell and Harris are just handing him notes like, all right, work this in because they've already been since like fatal attractions working, roping Excalibur more and more into the central X plots. Yeah. And this, this Genosha arc, such as it is, these, these two issues that get interrupted by Age of Apocalypse, aside from the four Age of Apocalypse issues, uh, this is really Ellis's first story that he's at least solo credited on in Excalibur because his his first one, the, the Soul Sword trilogy, came from uh Lobdell. Lobdell is credited as a plotter or, or somewhere along the way he gets mm -hmm. he gets the credit for sort of giving Ellis that idea as the incoming writer and then Ellis scripts it. But this is really his first um solo main 
timeline Excalibur story. And yeah, it, it would not be at all surprising if despite that he is still working off of some sort of larger editorial umbrella here. Absolutely. Uh, we do get, we get one scene that flashes back to, to Muir Island and uh, it's, it's Moira talking with Dr. Rory Campbell, who is on the Island at the time. And uh, I don't think, do we know yet? No, I don't think we know yet. Like, we do not know yet what I think you're suggesting we might later know. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I won't, I won't spoil that. Uh, but anyway, they're chatting and it doesn't, that, that other plot point doesn't matter. Uh, and, and, you know, talking about how Moira has the, the legacy virus and it, it, the news broke in prime uh, that, uh, you know, it's been passed on to humans and, or has it, Krakoa era retcons ask you? It's an excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> but she tells Rory to tell who, WHO, that she has the virus, confirm it. And you have to stop for a minute because you realize she means the World Health Organization, the real world thing that deals with pan, you know, pandemics and, and viruses and public health and not the weird happenings organization, the book that prior to like 1991 had been a major supporting uh you know uh organization in excalibur so that that that's a bit of of you know real world and fake world just clashing and being confusing it's one of those things where uh you know you read this when it's published in 1995 and your mind goes to the weird happenings organization because they were all over Excalibur for a long period of time. Uh, and then you read it today. And of course your mind immediately go WHO. We all know the WHO. They're like our best friends right now. <laughs> and of course that's the world health organization. What else could it be? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so Moira suspects in the scene, she suspects wisdom of leaking the info about her having the virus, which this is another thing that doesn't make sense because he wasn't on the island for very long before he was back off it to go to Genosha. Not to mention, nobody would have told him that because they don't know him, wouldn't trust him. It's possible Black Air had already hacked the team's files, but it seems weird to link the Black Air stuff to Trish Tilby learning about the virus in Prime because, as we've shown, the books weren't that well coordinated at the time. No, they were not. And we can, this is the first of, uh, but not the last, unresolved 90s subplot of this issue. As far as I can recall, I don't think we ever find out who leaked the Moira has the legacy virus, the legacy virus is infecting humans info to Trish Tilby. And the worst plot is, you can just say it was Onslaught. Yes, this is the era of Onslaught did it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I mean, this is this is a book that could not keep mutant and mutate straight, right? Right. Which is which is a step up from confusing mutate and Morlock, but but I digress. Right. 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 Oh man! And then I have a note here that just says mutant skin bolts is a very Warren Ellis plot. Yeah, it is. This idea that it's it, they're not just shooting bullets; they're special bullets made from mutant skin and i think at one point they some of the mutate sort of the refugees the the down on the luck mutates mm -hmm. get shot with the bullets and one of them complains about how they're biting yes and i'm curious like does it 
does it hurt like getting shot with a bullet and then also you feel the biting i feel like the the hit with a bullet would hurt more than being bit by like a tiny little mouth or is it like you it, like hot knives you just can't think about it or you're gonna go insane you you really can't and the other thing about that too the mutate who gets shot is drawn deliberately to look like wisdom because Brian's flash forward in 86, which shows this scene, leads you to think it's wisdom who is getting shot up. And then they just draw another dude with like quaffed jet black hair. <laughs> with like the little tangles, just like wisdom has. <laughs> and, and like a forehead tattoo getting hit by bullets. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, I did not remember that. And when I saw that in, in your notes, I I pulled the issue out again and went back and looked at it. I was like, son of a bitch, that does, that guy looks exactly like Pete Wisdom. That is just dirty pool to put that in the, the flash forward It's in 86. And then it's like, no, nah, no, it's not Wisdom. It's just a guy who looks exactly like him. Not to mention the fact the mutates traditionally have been shaved bald. Rain, right. when she becomes a mutate, shaved bald. Yep. Edgerton, Storm, bald. bald. There's, a, there's a guy in, in that scene who's like one of the Jack mutates who's fighting looks like when Charles Xavier has the use of his legs. Yep, but all amidst all that one guy, I guess his mutant power was to grow, was to basically be a, a, a mutant Chia pet. <laughs> he single-handedly props up the Genosian wig industry. Yeah, there we go. That's, that, that's what it is. And, and just, they harvest his hair every, every time they need <laughs> hair for wigs. Ah, oh, man. If only they had powdered wigs, like on the X-Men cartoon. Ninja, Ninja Doja. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah, and also those bullets look like the bullets in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. At one point, I think Britannic like holds up a little vial with the bullet, and you see it has like a little screaming mouth in it, and it looks like the bullets from. It, it's Roger it's Rabbit. the bullets from Robert Ra- Roger Rabbit with like the a Necronomicon skin. Yeah, it's like all pulled taut and yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like those uh, special edition Evil Dead 2 DVDs they put out years ago. Yeah, silly, silly stuff. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, finally, we do find out why specifically Excalibur is on this case, because there is a connection between the Bitey Bitey Bullets and uh, Brian. Yeah, Brian's dad, apparently, uh, and I'm forgetting what his dad's name is, but... Mr. Braddock, uh, Braddock the Elder, was involved in Genosha somehow. He helped make these bitey bullets or something. Uh, But this would be our second unresolved 90s plot line that gets tossed out here because I don't think this ever gets brought up again. This question of like, what did his dad do in Genosha? There's a loose tie to it, to the fact that his dad was in the Hellfire Club and the London Hellfire Club becomes a big plot point later on. You know, it, it, it's just the, it's the sketchy Ellis black air shit, basically. Yeah, yeah, it does. And you're right. I believe it does get referenced in that uh, London Hellfire Club arc that kind of it's kind of climax. It's not the last story arc of Ellis's, but it's kind of his climax. But <laughs> even there, it's more just a like, hey, remember this? We're still not going to tell you anything concrete about it. But, but just hang on to it. <laughs> um, another thing that I noticed is there's a very like. You, you get that sort of like just like old times scene of Kitty and Doug Locke doing stuff to computers. Like they've always been very good. That was the whole basis of their friendship 
hey, we're both good at what middle-aged comic book writers think is doing stuff to computers, uh, you know, hacking, hitting a bunch of keys, and then the thing unlocks. Uh, except now Douglock just, obviously Kitty can just phase through a computer and stuff happens and Douglock just jams his circuits uh, into it. But it's also, it's a case of, and Alice is notorious for this, his voice just seeping into every, creeping into every character as opposed to just his self inserts. So Douglock at one point says, it is old and stupid and needs to be coerced a little. Yeah, it's one of those things where you know you you might want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, well, he's he's still a, a relatively young writer, um, like you said, not his first professional work or first work at Marvel, but this is very early in his career. Alice, you'd be like, ah, it's just a you know, writer letting his own voice in. Except that we know it's Ellis's voice because, to your point, he writes so many characters with his own voice that now reading it in hindsight, we're like, oh, that's just Ellis's voice. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, eventually the sugar man gets tired of, of everyone snooping around. And so from his remote bank of monitors deep within the, the, uh, the mountain of Genosha uh, pushes a button and everything explodes again, thus burying the truth about the bitey bullets and whatever else it is uh, Excalibur came to find rendering their entire mission pointless. Which, and this is, this is exactly how, the story, the quote unquote story ended in X-Men prime with the, the old mutate blowing up by being blown up by sugar man remotely. Like the only bag in his only trick in his bag at this point is apparently remote detonation, um, (laughs) which doesn't bode well for sugar man. And the, so the idea here, and they kind of tease it a little bit in this issue, but it gets spelled out later in a cable story uh, of all places. Yeah. Uh, is that Sugar Man is responsible for the the Genosian mutates? That you know the original story is uh, you know the Gene Engineer, which is just one of those great Chris Claremont names, uh, mm-hmm. came up with this way to you know transform mutants into mutates, suppress their will, um, you know harness la the state to harness them and their mutant powers, and then Genosha becomes this green and prosperous land. And so this retcon is that Sugar Man, this refugee from the Age of Apocalypse, gave the Gene Engineer that that the information on how to do that, that he didn't create it, Sugar Man did, um, which is patently dumb. The coming out of Age of Apocalypse, they had these four characters that crossed over, despite the mechanics of uh, of how Age of Apocalypse is supposed to work. Uh, you could say a wizard did it. You can say Onslaught did it. In this case, it was the Emkron crystal that somehow allowed these four characters. And that's Dark Beast, Sugar Man, uh, Nate Gray, or X-Man, and, uh, and then Holocaust, or Nemesis, as he was later named, when someone was finally like, maybe we shouldn't have a villain called Holocaust running around. <laughs> um, and then because it's the Emkron crystal, they get slotted into these different time periods. And so Dark Beast gets retconned into having created the Morlocks. And Sugar Man gets retconned into having created the Mutates. And I'm a lot more forgiving of the Dark Beast retcon because we never really got much of an explanation for why Mr. Sinister sent the Marauders into the Morlock tunnels to kill the Morlocks. And the Dark Beast retcon says he was, he, he saw 
his work in the Morlocks, that Dark Beast had been experimenting on them and all this kind of stuff. And so he was wiping out this rogue strain of his genetic studies or whatever. And it's, you know, poke holes in it. And it, the Morlocks were supposed to be, you know, foundlings, basically people who just had these disfigurements and came together and whatnot. But it, at least it's answering a question that was sort of hanging out there. The Sugar Man retcon is, does none of that. It it doesn't answer a question and just introduces more questions of why. Why did he do it? Why did he care? What did he have to gain from it? And it just it takes away from the power of the metaphor at the heart of Genosha. That it's, you know, it's it's the stand-in for apartheid. And it's it's you know, you have the the veneer of civility and and high class society that's powered by mutant slavery and it's it's really one of the great metaphors of claremont's run especially the the latter half of it and then you drop this just goony four-armed long-tongued goofball 20 years in the past and you're like yeah he was responsible for all of that for reasons and just (laughs) does nothing it adds nothing to the equation um, which is the worst kind of retcon. It, it adds the greatest gift of all, uh, a Toy Biz figure. Yes, yes. Which, sadly, I owned at one point in time. Uh, it was the best thing about Sugar Man, frankly, was that Toy Biz figure. It was surprisingly well done for a stupid, stupid character. Yeah. And then you get the Marvel Legends Build-A-Figure, which, which looks even cooler. So. Right, right. <laughs> Ah, oh, man. But uh, final panel, from a distance, we see Wisdom's black hair handlers, uh, Sekluna and Threadgold, uh, watching all this. Apparently, they've been on Genosha this whole time and saying that basically all they wanted them to do was stir up some shit so that they could somehow profit, which, again, if all the secrets have blown up, what are they, what are they skimming here? Step one, send Excalibur and Pete Wisdom to Genosha. Step two, question mark. Step three, <laughs> profit. It is exactly that. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, as a story, it doesn't make much sense. And uh, that's uh, that's yet another unresolved mystery of the 90s. What what were those two up to? We get a little bit more of Black Air stuff in, in the next story and, and further on, but nothing like that concretely points back to sending Wisdom and Excalibur to Genosha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's, 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 um, it's unfortunate this, this little two-parter just because um, uh, other than setting up that Sugar Man retcon, it's not really clear why Excalibur is even involved in this story. Um, I mean, we, you get the in-universe, it was, you know, Captain Britain's dad was doing this stuff, but you know, thematically, they don't really have, other than just their mutants, and Genosha is a mutant thing, um, they don't have a strong connection to it. None of those characters had ever been to Genosha before, um, and it doesn't really fit with this era of Excalibur's whole um you know, we're working with Moira and we're basically like super powered EMTs, I think is supposed to be the idea that, that, um, you know, that, that they're going to help, you know, heal the world, heal Europe or whatever. Um, Genosha is off the coast of Africa. It's just, there's no, 
there's no purpose. There's no reason that this trip had to happen in Excalibur and that the Sugar Man retcon had to happen in Excalibur other than I guess they needed something for Excalibur to do coming out of Age of Apocalypse. And this was it. Yeah, it's 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 no it's an opening act. I mean, I guess Soul Sword Trilogy was an opening act, but in terms of, I guess, Ellis writing on his own, it's an opening act. It's a bit of throat clearing. It's getting the last of the editorial notes out, out of the way. And then he yeah, can go do yeah. his his X Files uh, story arc and and you know sort of come into his own with his self insert character. Yeah, I mean, and I guess to to the point of of your podcast here, I mean, the best thing about this story is that it introduces Pete Wisdom. It's really um, it's really a showcase for him. And as much as he is um, an author insert and becomes a little bit of a of a Mary Sue, as much as I don't really like that term. Mm-hmm. um he it's he's alice strikes the right balance here of um we can tell pete we we can tell that we should be paying attention to pete wisdom but he's not like poochifying things he's not pushing everybody off of the off of the page he's not saving the day he's not uh you know when, when he's not on page the other characters are like where's pete wisdom what's pete wisdom doing um he's there we can tell that we should keep our eye on him um, he gets the cool moment with his hot knives and that's really all there is to this story. And I, that's, that's not nothing, I guess. No, no. Uh, I, I will say, you know, the other characters may not have been saying where's Pete wisdom, but, uh, I definitely was maybe not at this point, <laughs> but by the end of dream nails, definitely by issue 91, uh, I, I was saying that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But now we're kind of going to get into some of the uh, the categories here. So uh, I wanted to talk about about the art a little bit. Uh, we we solved the the well, we think we solved the uh, the the prime mystery, so we don't have to get into that again. Uh, you know, uh, as for eighty seven, you know, we've established this. Ken Lashley, good at drawing superheroes. I'm going to miss him when he's gone. Uh, you know, there are a couple of uh, interesting little bits that I noticed uh, on page three of eighty seven. There's there's a panel where you're kind of looking like dead on a nightcrawler's face and he's got his mouth open and it looks like he has a light source inside his mouth. There's like a bright yellow glow where a uvula should be. Uh, <laughs> I found that notable. Uh, this is also the era where the books are all really starting to get into and explore digital coloring. Uh, and oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you can tell page four is there's a big panel of Kitty staring out a window and the whole page is is tinted to try to recreate that effect, which is not something that you'd really be able to to get across as successfully, you know, just a you know year or two prior. Yeah, this is this is not long after within the year mm-hmm. um, that Marvel switched to their deluxe editions where they were this issue um all of the their xbooks almost i think they're in most of their line at this point instead of getting printed on the sort of traditional comic book newsprint was getting printed on the shinier glossier paper um that we pretty much is still being used today and i don't know it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg kind of thing where that higher quality paper enabled them to do more with the computer coloring stuff but i also think they pushed for that in order to do more with the computer coloring. Mm. Um, but you, you can definitely see 
this is the era of like, oh, we have this fun new toy. Let's use it as much as possible in really bizarre minor ways. Like get the tint on this window just right. It was also, of course, an excuse to uh, drive up the price on books. Let's see, what were comics at this point? $1.95, okay. Buck ninety-five. yep. Yeah. And they, for a while at least, they did a uh, a newsstand version that was printed on the, the old paper and was like, I don't know, 50 cents less or something like that. Because hmm. um, th- there were still theoretically newsstands around um, in 1995, but that did not last very long. Yeah, and then Prime was four ninety five, which I mean, that's basically what a bonus sized book costs now. Well, I mean, that was a lot of money back then, but you got to pony up the dough to get that uh, Omnium Chrome Acetate cover or whatever the hell it was that that one had. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's what, whatever they moved on to after like lithium embossed foil covers, right? In, uh, right. Nineteen ninety three, every three issues of Avengers. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Got to celebrate that 50th issue of Quasar. Um, <laughs> any any number that's divisible by 25 or zero is uh, worthy of a special cover. Exactly. But uh, yeah, no, this is this is the last issue for a while where it's one artist and the art is consistent. And uh, so I look forward to being sad about art for the next uh, few months as I go through these. Although there is some Larry Stroman that comes up in a couple issues. So mm-hmm. that's always yeah. nice. Yeah. Uh, so uh, how many pages does wisdom appear in? Uh, he gets one page in, in uh, prime, which I think was like a 60 page giant or a 48 page giant, something like that. Uh, and then uh, nine pages in 87. Uh, best words of wisdom. Uh, my favorite wisdom line. And this one is probably, do you want this coffee or what? I ain't spatting it or anything. <laughs> Oh, Pete Wisdom. <laughs> yeah, that was him being nice. He offered Kitty a coffee. <laughs> uh, second place, though, uh, Kitty asks him, uh, are you always this miserable? And he replies, you should see me at Christmas. That was my favorite Wisdom line. I like that one. I also think it's funny that um, um, there he's, he's, he can't smoke in the Genosian parliament. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, just the, the notion that like Genosha is this war-torn nation suffering tremendous sectarian strife, but gosh darn it, you can't smoke in their parliament building. It's like being in bloody New York, he says. Yes, that's right. Which was a nice uh, uh, mid-90s shot at New York there. Yeah. Uh, zing. Uh, <laughs> uh, good British insults. Uh, he does call a mutate a toe rag which is our second toe rag of the series uh, since Wisdom came to town. Uh, and this time it's actually spelled correctly. The last time there was an F in it. Uh, he also calls the same character, and this is the guy that he blew up with his hot knives, uh, Sunbeam, but that's less uniquely Wisdom. That's more Arnold Schwarzenegger than Pete Wisdom. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, also at 95, you're, you're roughly in, you know, you're coming on the downslide of, of peak Schwarzenegger. You're somewhere between Terminator 2 and Jingle All the Way. Right, right. Yeah, you, action heroes are, are quickly losing their dry cool wit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, does he use his hot knives in this issue? Known prime, yes to 87 for the first time. They look like tiny diamonds. Uh, does he smoke in this issue? No in prime, but yes in 87. But not in the parliament building. But not in the parliament building. No smoking parliaments in the parliament building. That's correct. 
here's our here's our uh, suit watch sector. Uh, You'll so, love the way it fits. I guarantee it. <laughs> I might just isolate that as a sting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he's still in his tattered Thailand suit in Prime uh, and in the flashback scenes in 87. But as we said, he does get a clean suit at some point. Uh, it will not stay clean for long. Uh, I, I was thinking about this. I feel like wisdom goes through tattered work clothes at the same rate as Chief Quimby from Inspector Gadget. Uh, I don't know if you remember him. He was constantly getting uh, injured by carelessly discarded self-destructing messages. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the, like, uh, uh, what happens in Mission Impossible after they listen to the message and then walk away. Yes. Except he's still in the trash can or mailbox or wherever he was hiding right. the handed gadget. Can't, can't get out of. It is, it, it is interesting because you you read superhero comics and everybody has their their fancy costumes on and everything and so you don't think about the fact that you know this is they're spending two weeks in genosha and kitty is wearing the same thing the whole time because you're just like they're superheroes and that's what they wear and you have the little part of your brain that's like you know unstable molecules or whatever exactly but then you but then you've got Pete wisdom whose uniform from start to finish is a rumpled suit at all times and then at this point he's just you know uh, a gritty secret agent working with Excalibur but eventually he joins the team and everything continues to just wear rumpled suits so then I wonder if like at some point in time do the rumpled suits become unstable molecules like well you're on the team now would you like a costume no I'd rather just keep wearing these suits well we're gonna make you suits out of these unstable molecules so you don't have to worry about them getting dirty or clean you know cleaning them taking them to the cleaners all that kind of stuff what i want to know is where is the sweatshop that reed richards so very obviously has where people are making superhero costumes out of unstable molecules i mean it's got to be in the negative zone right that or madripoor yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Uh, that's too <laughs> Yeah, it's probably mad report. <laughs> uh, and uh, another question that we ask in every issue, uh, is Wisdom a good guy? Jury is still out. Uh, right now, he's still mostly just a guy who stands in the background and snipes at people, uh, you know, but we do get glimpses. He offers Kitty a coffee. He feels remorse after he hot knives up the mutate who attacks him. You know, he hints at the bad stuff that he's done in the past that he's trying to get away from. He, does, he does, still doesn't want to be there, but we don't really, we're still not at the point where we're digging into the stuff that makes him a sympathetic character. Finally, uh, too early for this yet, but I like to look at the sword strokes column to see if there's any letters about uh, the hot, the uh, sensational character find of 1995. Uh, no, but I did get confused looking at the letters because it, it's people talking about sort of the start of the Ellis run and the soul sword trilogy. And people are like, Oh, I really liked Hellstorm." You know, that was I really liked when Ellis wrote Hellstorm. And I'm like, you idiot. It's Hellstrom, R-O. But then I Googled it on the off chance that I was wrong. And apparently the miniseries about Damon Hellstrom was actually called Hellstorm. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those things that has never been done consistently. And it was then not helped at all by titling his book, Hellstorm when he's supposed to be Hellstrom. Yeah. 
And also, Hellstorm just sounds like the video game that Bart stole in that one Christmas episode. <laughs> Pimey Bone Stormer, go to hell. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so I did get a couple of questions from our uh, Twitter Inquisitor Supreme Asimov fangirl. Uh, she says, uh, I haven't read a lot of issues of Mr. Wisdom, so I'm surprised by the amount of anguish killing the mutate cost him. Is this an aspect? Con- uh, is this aspect constant in the character, or is it lost after time? Uh, I think, especially early on, his whole deal is that, you know, yes, he's a spy. He doesn't like doing the dirty work. He doesn't like killing. Uh, I, I don't necessarily know that it's his taste for killing has changed, but how he interacts with black ops has changed, uh, and I think a lot of this is due to what Paul Cornell does later with the character where he basically puts him, we see what happens when wisdom is on top of the, the British intelligence community and how he makes spycraft work for him instead of sort of bemoaning the things that he's made to do on her majesty's secret service. And so I, I when you're in control and you're the one sort of pointing the, the spies and the soldiers around you, you, tend not to feel as guilty and also they were vampires and they were bad anyway (laughs) always easier to kill vampires exactly Uh, yeah there's um coming up you'll get to it in a little while we get a little bit of backstory about like his last mission before the mission that he literally like showed up in issue 86 wearing Mm -hmm. a rumpled suit uh, the mission that rumpled that suit uh, was one that went badly. And I forget the specifics of um, like how it went badly. If it was a, like he had to kill someone he didn't want to kill or someone got killed under his watch. But that was sort of the um, the thing that that broke his fidelity to to black air and the British intelligence community. And that ties in with his whole with his morality and his relationship to killing. Mm hmm. I don't think I've had, that actually might be one of the stories that I haven't read. So uh, Ooh, that'll well, be interesting to dig that's into. To look forward to. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, she also asks, is wearing a suit on missions a regulation thing or does he just really like to look fancy? That's the thing. He doesn't look fancy. These are off the rack suits. He, he is he is not a bespoke lad. Maybe a little bit later on, some artists, you know, finally clean him up a little bit. But for this run, especially like he... This man has never touched iron to uh, poly cotton blend. No, the the my perpetual image of Pete Wisdom is rumpled white dress shirt, black tie that is always loosened so that the collar can be open. Like mm-hmm. this, this is not a man that that um, uh, dresses Natalie, even though he is constantly wearing a suit. Yes, definitely. Um be right at home on the British office. Yes, very much so. Uh, and then I uh, like to I like to go through the ads since I have the physical copies. You know, eventually when uh, I have to turn to uh, Marvel Unlimited to find the ones I don't have, I won't get to do this. But for right now, uh, let's see. We've got we've got Tales from the Hood, a Spike Lee produced black horror anthology that for some reason gives top billing to Corbin Burnson. Uh, and <laughs> the nineties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, an ad for free comics in the mail paid for with Kool-Aid points. Uh, oh, yeah. An ad for the Marvel Malibu crossover comic Wolverine versus the Nightman, 
which Austin, I don't know if you watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but the phrase of the nightman has a whole different context for me. <laughs> uh, I don't watch a lot of Always Sunny, but I am familiar with the additional nightman context of which you speak. <laughs> okay. Uh, we got Judge Dredd, the video game. That's the Stallone Judge Dredd, not the Carl Urban. Uh, Justice League Task Force, a DC fighting game that I was not familiar with. Uh, where you basically just have the league beat each other up. It's not like Batman versus, it's not like Injustice. It's not like Batman versus the Joker or anything. It's like Batman versus Aquaman. And then finally, we have possibly the greatest ad of the mid-90s, Combo Man. Oh, Combo Man. Boy, this one showed up so many places. Now, Pop Quiz Hot Shot. I'm holding up to the camera, Combo Man. Can, can you tell me every single layer of Combo Man? Oh, see, I went and pulled it up on my screen because I put a Combo Man screenshot in one of my reviews the first time it, it, it came up. Excellent. Uh, so, but this is, I have not, I am just looking at it now. Um, so we start at the top with Hulk. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm pretty sure that's Hulk hair and Hulk forehead. Then you got Cyclops's visor, the jaw of Iron Man's helmet, mm -hmm. Magneto's shoulders, the yep. classic Magneto, the start of a cape, which is a weird, where's the rest of the cape? Uh, Punisher, the top of Punisher's skull, mm -hmm. the bottom of Captain America's star. Then I believe, oh boy, they're probably... This might be a, a trick question. I think they're going for Wolverine here, the brown and tan Wolverine, but mm -hmm. I almost feel like it looks more like the Jim Lee Sabretooth redesign because it's got the tiger stripe on each, uh, what is the, above the elbow, mm -hmm. below the shoulder, the bicep maybe. Um, Either that or they're going for the hyper-specific time Wolverine walked around in Fang's costume from the Imperial Guard. Right, yes, yes. So I think that's probably Sabretooth. Um, Carnage, then, I believe, is the lower part of the six-pack abs and the elbows. Ah, okay, okay. Then it's the uh, uh, Daredevil, the the revamped Daredevil. I'm forgetting the yeah. name of the of the crossover, but um, Fall from Grace, the Fall yes. from Grace '90s Daredevil. Uh, that's the the gauntlets and the belt. Spider Man's gloves. He's got mm -hmm. Spider Man's gloves on. Um, and then I think that's supposed to be Mister Fantastic's trunks. Um, or uh, no, because he doesn't have the white the white uh, patch on the knee. See, I thought the patches might be from somebody else, but I also couldn't say who. Yeah, that's the stumper. So then below that, Human Torch's legs, they're on fire. Mm -hmm. Silver Surfer's calves, uh, <laughs> which is okay. <laughs> and then I'm assuming Dr. Doom's boots. Uh, ah, okay, I, I thought they might be Gambit's metal sneaking boots, but Doom's oh, probably, that could Doom be. probably makes more sense. Yeah, I mean they're 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 silver boots with with they look like you know stripes the kind of that metal yeah. banded metal which I guess really isn't doom his his are more smooth but that's I mean that's there's a thousand comic book characters that have weird metal banded boots but that uh, those thighs man that's the stumper I am not a hundred percent sure it, there is there's something about Mister Fantastic being the crotch of Combo Man though. <laughs> 
uh, of all the pieces. <sighs> but uh, next time, about a month from now, uh, we're going to learn more about wisdom uh, and Black Air as we dive into the first part of the Dream Nails trilogy and Excalibur number 88. But until that time, Austin, how can people find and support the things that you are doing? Well, as you said, um, I am writing, I do write for Comics XF. So of course you can go there and find the stuff that I am, uh, that I'm working on there. Um, X lives and X deaths of Wolverine. I'm in the rotation there. Um, so that'll be coming up soon. Um, I review a couple of Star Wars books there and, and do some other stuff. So check that out, of course, comicsxf.com. Um, I've also written some stuff for comicbookherald.com. Uh, my website is therealgentlemanofleisure.com. That is where I am reviewing every issue of X-Men um, in publication order. I am up to the very, very end of 1996 when Marvel released approximately 150 different X-related things. And I don't know if I'll ever get out of December of 1996, but... <laughs> Uh, it has to happen at some point. Theoretically, I've got to run out of things. Um, oh, I'm trapped in the Domino miniseries. I, it's coming up. It's on my list. It'll be there soon. Um, yeah. So I started with X-Men number one from 1963. So you can uh, realgenerallyleisure.com. Um, find those reviews there. You can follow me on Twitter at Austin Gorton. And uh, I also do a podcast with, with a couple of friends, a very special episode uh, in which we review uh, very special episodes of TV mostly, but also some comic books and some TV movies and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, like the Different Strokes episode where the creepy bicycle man hits on Arnold or uh, the Mr. Well, I don't want to do that's another... <laughs> bad child one uh uh it was the 80s there were a lot of those there there were a lot of those yeah there was a different strokes episode where nancy reagan told kids not to do drugs uh we talked about that one one time uh, uh so you can find that at a very special episode podcast.com and uh you know itunes google play you know all that spotify um any place you go to find your podcasts you'll find it there Right on. Uh, and in the meantime, if you like this show and you want to keep it going, uh, tell your friends, uh, you know, we are, are hoping that this bonus content drives more people to uh, the Patreon and to check out the work that Matt and I are doing over on WMQ&A, the, uh, the main podcast uh, where we talk to uh, creators uh, and whatnot. So spread that word. Uh, and until next time, listeners, sawed off toe rag. <laughs>